traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My word of the year is personalized. Personalized medicine, personalized advertising. It's the me, me, me generation. I think my word of the year would be anything ending with an exclamation mark, thanks to my auto reply and Donald Trump. <laughs> it battled. It's everywhere. Cloud lighting. Weaponized. I hate the word weaponized. Gender pay gap. CRISPR baby. Snowflake. My word of the year is Facebook. Gender self-identification. Flexitarian. Vegan. My word of the year is tariffs. Hello and welcome to this special festive edition of The Economist Asks, where we'll be decoding the language of the closing year and asking which words sum up 2018. I'm Lane Green, but readers will know me a bit better as Johnson, The Economist's language columnist. I'm in the studio today with two fellow wordsmiths. Anton LaGuardia is deputy foreign editor, but much more importantly, he is one of the keepers of The Economist's style bible. This weighty tome thrust into the hands of all our new writers contains the commandments of good writing from the proper usage and spelling of the term bellwether to the perils of making too free with metaphors. Welcome, Anton. Hello. And across the table from him is Lynn Murphy. She's professor of linguistics at Sussex University and the author of The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between British and American English. Thank you so much for joining us, Lynn. Thank you. So, Lynn, you are, like me, an American in Britain. Tomato and tomato, potato, potato, do we have to call the whole thing off? I don't think we have to call the whole thing off. I mean, I've had a very nice time living in England for the last 20 years, marrying an Englishman, and uh, we, we tend to communicate all right. There are the moments where we go past each other, but they're few and far between. And would you say there's anything new about the American and British relationship, how they see each other and how they're perceived? Well, I think there's a longstanding idea that somehow British English is purer or more traditional than American English. That's not necessarily true because language changes everywhere all the time. But what we do have is probably an increasing sense of concern on the British side that because of the internet and other sorts of media that Americanisms are coming into their language too fast. It occurred to me recently that if you asked 10 people, which is older, British or American English, all 10 would say British English. But really, they're both descended from the same 1600-era English. Yeah. Both have changed by about 418 years' worth of change. Absolutely. And both are probably about the same rate. Neither has really got any claim to seniority. No, no, because, you know, your grandmother's grandmother's grandmother, no matter where she lives, is still your relative. Now, Anton, we do warn against Americanisms in the Style Guide to the Economist. Why is that? Well, we are a uh, British publication writing about the world, and we write in British English, although the secret is that most of our readers are in the United States, but they seem to like British English, and they seem to find our turns of phrase um, appealing. Okay, and after a while, we do allow originally American words and phrases into our book. Uh, when, when is the test for something that's past the time and gets its uh, permanent residency in, in British English or in our English? I think as with everything else, it, it 
changes depending on how frequently the word is used and how apt it seems. If there's no better word than an American word, we'll use it with alacrity. <laughs> I imagine if you say American English to a lot of people right now, the first thing that will come to mind is Donald Trump and his Twitter feed, maybe, unfortunately. Do you think he's having any effect on the language, Lynn? I, I don't think that many people are reading Donald Trump or listening to him and thinking, I want to talk like that. So people often ask that question, but I don't tend to think that he has a direct effect on, on what words we use, et cetera, except sometimes when we mock him. What about in political language generally? Are other politicians maybe trying to imitate his style of uh, nicknames and catchphrases and insults? I think it does enter the, the political language mm -hmm. that his stock phrases become used in headlines, sometimes mocking, sometimes echoing, you know, make X great again. Or, sad with an exclamation mark. Or sad yeah. with an exclamation yeah. mark or writing in all caps. I mean, that's it's sort of is, people understand who you're quoting when you're making those sorts of references. Now, all publications do have style guides, but at The Economist, ours has a bit of a difference. Since our work is usually anonymous, we have to try to write in such a way that if it doesn't have a single voice, at least it has something resembling a close harmony. Uh, do you think we pull it off? And um, how do you keep us in tune, so to speak? I went to our data guys to ask them, how many words do we actually write every week? And the answer was 75,000 words a week. That's in the print edition. So, you know, that's a, that's a book. And we have writers from all over the world uh, with all sorts of backgrounds. So we, you know, we need a style guide so that we can agree on basic spellings of words and set out some basic rules. Some of these are arbitrary. Some of them are uh, in line with the way most people speak. And sometimes we, I would say, we're probably behind the curve in terms of the language that we adopt. I think we wait longer to see whether words are really adopted into the language or whether they're just passing fads. How much do you think we lag behind changes in the language? We try not to adopt the most vogue usages out there. So the strange thing is that the style guide tells our writers to adopt the language of everyday speech to avoid boring, turgid, jargon-filled language of politicians and consultants. Yet we do pull our writers back from using literally the language of the street. So we're, uh, we're conservative, but we try not to be turgid. So the language of the street maybe of 1965 is about where we're up to or something no, like I that. I think we get up to the 80s sometimes. Okay, we're in the 80s. But Lane, tell me, I suspect you think any attempt to impose rules on language is ultimately in vain. Your own book this year, Talk on the Wild Side, compares English to a wolf, a wild wolf rather than a tame dog. The reason I like the wolf is because it can survive in the wild without a whole lot of guidance. In fact, it's, it's robust and it's made to do so. It's made to, to change and it's made flexible in order to survive in lots of different circumstances. Hunger and uh, feast, you know, domesticated animals are not quite so robust. And language just shows us when it changes and as it changes that it, it, it responds to change itself by changing and making sure that all its speakers have pretty much the words they need to say all the things they want to say. And that goes for the grammar, that goes for pronunciation. When one part changes, other parts change to make sure that the language is still hugely expressive. Journalists tend to worry that language is falling apart. But then people in linguistics tend to accept that while change is constant, it doesn't end up in broken down language. No, if your language stopped changing, that's when you'd want to start worrying because that would mean people weren't using it and changing it in day-to-day -day life. Yeah, they say the only non-changing language is a, is a dead language. Absolutely. The way to see it is we're, we're using a form of a language that's 
mated with some other languages along the way and given us something more robust. To use your analogy of animals, something else has come in from another group and, and enlivened the gene pool. I think you portray the exchange of British and American words, to some extent grammar and other features, as generally a good thing for, for both varieties rather than the sort of contamination of the bloodline. Well, I think you, you have to start out by acknowledging that there is no one bloodline in either of those places. You know, British English is a hugely diverse thing. But the interrelation of American and British words usually brings on a little bit more subtlety to the language. Like with the case of meet with, you know, one thing when people complain about it that they miss is that it takes care of an ambiguity in the language. If you meet someone, it's unclear if you first made their acquaintance or if you're sitting down to have a conversation. So meet with takes care of that ambiguity. It's, it might be something new and unfamiliar, but it's not something redundant necessarily. And I think you've noted things like when the British take on cookie, they don't mean it to replace biscuit. They mean it can actually a different kind of it's, little It's a different kind of thing. You could say, I don't want this cookie. I'd rather have a biscuit, you and, know, and everybody will know what you mean. And fries are not uh, chips. Fries are long and thin. Chips are, yep. are fat and fluffy. I should also say that there's been recent research by Paul Baker at Lancaster University that's looked at how the vocabulary of British and American English has changed over, well, since 1931, basically. And he's found that in the main, we've kept our own words. Nobody in Britain is saying highway now. They're still saying motorway, and they're not saying hood of the car. They're still saying bonnet. Those kinds of things, they're staying stable. Some, some things change, and they make a splash. Okay, so recognizing some of those changes, we've actually just had a big style update this year, a new edition of our style guide, which everyone listening to this should go and get. One of the updated rulings was that we finally changed the ruling on the split infinitive and said, if it's easy to reword and avoid, go ahead and do so. But where doing so would either ruin the rhythm or introduce confusion, the best result is to split the infinitive. Uh, That itself drove some readers to write us fresh, angry letters. But I think it was a welcome change. We've made some other changes as well this year, Anton. What have you noticed? So we took the hyphen out of email, so it's now all one word. We kept the hyphen in e-commerce, just simply because on the written page it just looks very strange to have e-commerce still. Perhaps in years to come it'll be accepted as much as email. We've taken the hyphen out of startup, cryptocurrencies, and and much else that becomes you know current and important. And have you noticed any trends in readers' pet hates or complaints? There are lots of them. You have a number of very particular readers who, for example, want us to make sure we know the difference between an exclave and an enclave. Uh, This is particularly in relation to Kaliningrad on the Baltic coast. And then you have a wonderful selection of of other letters that come in, you know, denouncing our use of the comma or the use of the colon uh, or whatever it else is their pet hate. One of my favorite examples in your book, Lynn, is the probably the peeve of all peeves to British speakers today, which is, can I get... It drives British people crazy. Some people think it came from the television show Friends, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, I mean, it was was used, I think, 12 times in Friends over all of its episodes, but its episodes were shown an awful lot in, in Britain. It's hard to say where something like that comes from. You'll get it from different places, and you have to hear it a lot before you'll start to use it yourself. Um, The complaint that people make about it is that it sounds like you're asking to hop over the counter and make your own coffee if you say, can I get a 
a latte. But, you know, I got a birthday present. That didn't mean I went into the shop and got it myself. No, you know? the acquire <laughs> meaning is probably 500 years old. Yeah, I looked it up yeah. not long ago. It's not an Americanism by any stretch of no, the No, but that phrase is an Americanism. Can and I the, get it? the problem with it in a British context is that there are ways to ask for things politely in Britain that are not necessarily the same ways to ask for them politely in America. And that that's the kind of thing that rubs people up the wrong way when their politeness norms change. That's right. We think of other people's politeness norms as impolite because they're not our politeness norms. Exactly. So it's easy to identify the things that drive us crazy, but a little harder to pin down what makes truly great writing. Our style guide begins with the advice of George Orwell from his essay, Politics and the English Language. Never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. Never use a long word, where a short one will do. If it's possible to cut out a word, always cut it out. Never use the passive, where you can use the active. Never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word, if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. But break any of these rules, sooner than say anything outright barbarous. Lynn, what are your favorite rules for good, vivid writing? I think the short sentences is a key one. And I read a lot of student writing, of course, in my job. And what you can see is people who don't edit don't write short sentences. They tend to start out with, it's important to note that it's the case that there should be, you know, and you think I'm a dozen words into this sentence and I have no information. We have, even within the paper, there's a difference in the sentence length of stories that appear in print, which have been edited much more heavily than stories that appear in blogs and online, in part because there's more space. You have infinite space online, whereas in a print article, every line is a premium. It's a line you have to cut somewhere else. We should tell readers who've never done this that when you're editing for a print publication, you have to spend about three quarters of your time trimming words to get things on just the right number of lines, not too many, not too few. It it consumes a huge amount of your attention and your work. There are a couple of guides to good writing apart from George Orwell's famous rules. I I do quite like the Beaumont said about Susan Sontag when they said, her journalism like a diamond will sparkle more if it's cut. Is there anything that you particularly like this year, anything that you admired as a piece of writing, Anton? Oh, uh, lots of wonderful turns of phrase, gems that you find in our coverage. I think the most difficult thing perhaps to do is to turn complicated technical subjects into readable prose that everybody will both understand and, more important, enjoy. So there's a lovely turn of phrase from a piece that we had on the question of indices. How do you measure human capital? which said, unlike poets, economists prefer to quantify their analogies to measure whether thou art 15% or 20% more lovely and more temperate. Excellent. Isn't that lovely? That is pretty great. Uh, Lynn, have you read anything that really struck you, even just a turn of phrase or a metaphor? The book that I'm really enjoying at the moment is Joe Moran's First to Write a Sentence. I I just am impressed by the chutzpah it takes to write a a book about sentences, in sentences, and, and have the confidence that you're writing beautiful sentences as you do it, and he has. So thinking back on what you've read or indeed written this year, I wonder if you've noticed any trends that you think are particularly representative of the last 12 months. One thing that I found really interesting is coming out of the Me Too movement, People are writing about Me Too with the hashtag in it in flowing prose. And it, it's almost like the hashtag has become a silent letter mm-hmm. in English writing. And so I'm, I'm interested to follow that and see where that goes. It would look strange without the hash, wouldn't it? 
I mean, you do see it without the hash, but you see it an awful lot with the hash, but you wouldn't say hashtag me too in the flow of the, of the paragraph. Whereas other things that had this course, like Black Lives Matter, just became normal phrases, they no did. hash, written as three different words, but me too is still hash, capital M, capital T very often. Absolutely, yeah. Anton, what struck you about the last 12 months or so in the English language? Well, there's this whole language of politics, which is still in flux, and it ranges from populism, globalism, nationalism. These words will remain contested uh, as people try to fight over the meaning and over who owns you know, the sort of legitimate use of the word. One thing that I've noticed in that vein is the, is the language of sort of online political discourse. And it's the speed with which a word that was a self-praising term becomes an insult from the other side or a piece of abuse from the other side is appropriated and turned into a, something that people welcome. For example, a um, social justice warrior might have been something that someone called themselves sort of proudly before. That's now a sort of term of abuse by people who are mocking the so-called social justice warriors. Or woke, which a year and a half ago might have been a term that people were using to describe themselves. I think I hear it more often now as a term of mockery of the people who think that they're woke. Or, or the term woke bro, which sort of came up this year, where it's somebody who thinks they're very aware of of inequalities, but, you know, is sort of building themselves up. Or uh, there's the opposite. There's the appropriation. So uh, there were the deplorables. Hillary Clinton was caught on tape saying something about the basket of deplorables who were part of Donald Trump's support base. And they just started calling themselves deplorables very proudly. And I think in more recent uh, year, I've seen I've seen the term iron snowflake. It was a snowflake was a term of abuse of the so-called overly sensitive left progressives. Um, and so they've they've taken that on and appropriated it. I mean, that kind of thing, though, has been going on for ages. So if you think about something like political correctness, you know, in the 80s, People were using it in a sincere way to think about being good people. And then, you know, it, it went the other way. What I think I was new, maybe not to 2018, but at least to the last few years, is the speed with which the turn comes. Absolutely. Something goes from sincere to ironic very, very quickly in these days. And that's the power of social media. Right. In which language is no longer filtered and processed by uh, intermediaries such as ourselves. That's right. There's so many more usages out there. We're exposed to so many more different voices, these things. Any, any kind of change, I think, will make its way through the system so much more quickly than it did before. I mean, there's a whole language of gender, of course, which is also sort of contested. And, and, and you know, th- does trans man and trans woman take a space or not? And this is a subject uh, of many angry letters that arrive at the paper. I looked um, the other day to see if the word pronoun was becoming more frequent in the news. It didn't seem to be, but I certainly know in education. You know, at my university, you can you know, go to a uh, basket of, of badges and pick up one that says, what's your pronoun and tells you what your pronoun is. I mean, that discussion, I mean, it's, it's interesting in that it's brought some grammatical terminology to everybody's everyday lives. Lynn, you're on campus. That's your job as a yeah. professor of linguistics. So you're closer to the young people uh, than, than maybe Anton and I are at the moment. What are you noticing about the language of late teens, early 20-somethings? What do you think will happen to pronouns? I really wonder what will happen to pronouns. I mean, I think it's an interesting debate because, you know, for years people had been arguing about sexist language. And so here we have not just an effort to make language gender neutral, but an, an effort to make gender, language gender neutral, but just for some people. And um, that's a rather different track. Something that uh, we changed in the style book this year was the use of singular they for antecedents like someone, like someone said, you know, or everyone has their own opinion. We've allowed they in that context because that's about 700 years old in English. And we, we're very late to the party in that sense, but it's in the OED. Uh, they're all host of great Victorian beardy writers and all kinds of other people have used it. But what's genuinely new is they as a pronoun for a singular 
referent who's known but does not prefer male or female pronouns. They'll say, you know, Chris said that they are a non-binary person. And uh, this is difficult for people because while they might say someone left their umbrella, saying Chris left their umbrella is something that takes a bit of acquisition to do. It takes a bit of practice. And there's some research that people who do it frequently can do it comfortably and naturally. But a lot of people who haven't had a lot of exposure to non-binary people find it a huge struggle to do that. I mean, some people would claim it's ungrammatical to say they are when you mean a singular person. But, you know, the same thing happened to you centuries ago that you used to be the plural and and not the singular and now we use it as a singular. These things happen. And then we come to the most important part of the show, the bit I'm sure you've all been waiting for. We're going to have some nominations for Word of the Year for 2018. Every year, the big dictionary publishers choose a word that captures the zeitgeist. Here are a few that made it to this year's shortlists. Nomophobia, the fear of being without your mobile phone. No platforming, to prevent a person from contributing to public debate. Misinformation, information intended to deceive. Cakeism, the belief that one can both have one's cake and eat it. Techlash, a backlash against the big tech companies and their products. Backstop, an emergency precaution or last resort. Plogging, to pick up litter while jogging. Okay, tough competition here. This year, the Oxford Dictionary went for toxic. That is toxic politics, toxic pollution, toxic masculinity. And Collins, another dictionary publisher, opted for single use as pressure mounted in 2018 to phase out lots of plastic waste, things like those little pods of coffee that you pop in for a single cup. What do you think about these choices, Lynn? Do they have staying power? I think they're both really interesting in that they've settled on environmental themes. I mean, in in the case of toxic, it's a social environment as well as the physical environment. Single use, I thought, was perfect for this year because if you look at how it's been used over time, it, it came into being in the 50s when people were writing things like single-use typewriter ribbon. But if you look at how often it's used in print, you know, January... 2018 is when it went right up, and that was following David Attenborough's Blue Planet 2 program. So I thought it was a perfect word to sum up this year. I wasn't particularly enamored of toxic. I looked back at our own use of it, and it actually peaked in 2009 in the Economist uh, corpus of writing, obviously used in the context of toxic debt and toxic assets and height of the financial crisis. So we may just be behind the line. You know, we may be rising up again, but it doesn't strike me as a use that's going to be particularly popular. I mean, I'm sure it will endure. I think part of what Oxford was doing was judging it on the basis of how many people are looking it up. Maybe because it's being used in new contexts like toxic masculinity or toxic workplace. People do need to, to think about it and look it up a bit more. Looking at the shortlist gives us a bit of a fuller picture of what's on people's minds. What strikes me about this is how many of these are essentially political topics. Uh, there are obviously Brexit-related words such as cakeism, which is a reference to Boris Johnson saying Britain could have its cake, eat it. And Brexit itself has generated any number of adjectives, hard, soft, blind, and so on and so forth. So uh, I think we will, you know, as long as this crisis goes on, which is likely to for some years, we will continue to see the language around Brexit. One of the creative changing. ones I noticed was gammon, which is the sort of uh, term, slightly abusive term really, for a flushed, red-faced, older white man, typically home counties, Tory voting, Brexit supporting. But, uh, you know, at least the image is a fresh one, if nothing else. 
And then there's backstop, of course. Anton, can you unpack that one for us? Well, the backstop is a complicated matter to do with how Ireland will be treated after Brexit to ensure that there is no hard border on the island of Ireland. So you could have chosen a different word. They've chosen backstop. I'm afraid we're stuck with it. I don't particularly like it. I do like plugging. I think plugging is a great word. Do you think it'll make it plugging? I'm not so sure about plugging. I mean, those sort of portmanteau words tend to be a bit faddish. But in terms of backstop, I think it is an interesting choice because even though it's an old word, you know, so it's been around since the 19th century for barriers that prevent something from moving forward, the newspapers feel the need to define backstop when they talk about backstops, which does tell you this is a word that's coming in this year and, and really being a 2018 word. So now comes the time where we can maybe all try to make our own little mark on linguistic history and pick our own words of the year. Anton, why don't you start us off and let us know what struck you about the vocabulary of 2018? I think the word populist is the one we most have to think about because it's used increasingly frequently and increasingly loosely to mean things that are popular, have some popularity, but are things that we don't like. You have populists on the left and populists on the right and perhaps even populists in the center. So I think we have to try and, and use better terms. And I think populism is used especially by centrist liberals as a way of casting insults on people they disagree with. Lynn? I write a blog where for the last 12 years I've had a British to American word of the year and an American to British word of the year. And this year I am short on nominations, so I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to carry it on. But the one that might be there is optics, which is a um, an American origin um, sort of PR term for what is the appearance of something. What are the optics on this decision we've made. You know, how is that going to appear to people? And that's something that uh, British correspondents have been writing to me about. I'm sure scientists of, of optics hate this. It, I'm sure they do. It doesn't add anything on the word appearance, really, except the sheen of it, science. It, it's and I very, put my pen through that one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I find it a very cynical word. You are trying to manage the appearances of things rather than look at the things themselves. And we should think about tech. Because tech is one of those words that is increasingly used to mean digital technology. But actually, there's an awful lot of non-digital technology that is tech. You know, a car is a computer with wheels, as one of our colleagues likes to say. I was thinking about the words of the year, and I find them, frankly, dreary. There are very many of them are essentially insults, cakeism, gaslighting, gammon. They're, they're a sign of our extremely divided politics. And one that struck me... Uh, not because I love it, but because it's a sign of the times, is the phrase white fragility. It's one of the ones you find on Twitter. And it is meant to evoke the idea of a white person who thinks that an accusation of racism is so terrible that it's really worse than the than the racism in the world and that, uh, that there's a sort of breakdown in the conversation when anyone suggests that racism is there when the supposedly fragile white person cannot really deal with that accusation. Yeah, that. that was on my list as well. And not only is it used with white fragility, you're also seeing masculine fragility these days. So we're feeling like 2018 has been almost as bad as 2016. We're talking about a lot of negative words. Has anybody got uh, a positive suggestion from the year? Okay, we might have cut that right out. No. The words aren't positive in themselves, but it is positive that we're talking about some of these things. So it's positive that we're talking about single-use plastics, for example. Um, so I wouldn't get completely depressed by these words. And it's 
positive that people are plogging. Whether the word survives or not for picking litter up while jogging, um, the fact that people are doing it says that they are doing something for the environment, even while they're getting their exercise in. Although with a word like that, you have to suspect that maybe the word's more popular than the actual activity. If the activity ends, it'll be flagging. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn Murphy, Anton LaGuardia, thank you so much for joining me to try to put 2018 into words. Thank you. Thank you. One consolation is that the appetites of the tastemakers being what they are, the words of 2018 will probably lose currency about as fast as they gained it. But before they do, we want to hear your nominations. What uses and abuses of English get your goat? And as 2019 approaches, what word sums up the closing year? Write to us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. I'm Lane Green, and in London, this is The Economist. 